Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. <laughs> Man, but nowadays, I just feel, I feel nauseous most of the time I'm trying to... Well, I, I, mean, what, I had my duffel coat on and it was so packed, oh. I couldn't get it off. Oh, good grief. <laughs> so I was horrible. trapped in a duffel coat on an overcrowded train. That's a train journey from hell. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Uh, Fraser and I will just do a little bit first, okay. actually. We'll catch up with a bit of, a bit of business okay. and then we'll introduce you. Sure. Is that all right? Um, and... Um, so, are we recording? We are recording. It's the Word Podcast. I'm David Hepworth. And I'm Fraser Lurie. And a uh, little bit of business. I, I, I think we, we, have to, we have to have a serious stiff word with our Australian listeners. Uh, what can we now? And um, Johnny Australian, you may remember that a couple of uh, podcasts ago we were talking about somebody got in touch and said, I really like your magazine, but I wish you'd stop having all this stuff about, about British TV because I'm Australian. Yeah. Can you take it out? Yeah. And we, we dealt with him quite firmly, didn't we? Yes, we did. This morning, very... You know, I get up early, and, uh, and the first email I saw was from somebody in Australia saying, I haven't had a podcast for a week. Have you stopped doing it? <laughs> you know, uh, now I calculate that it's, it's eight days since we did one. Yeah. So you could say that we're going one day over our normal, you know, weekly cycle. Yeah. But I say that's a bit bloody rich, isn't it? You know? I think it is, yeah. And I said... We're doing one in a few hours' time. And then he immediately emailed back because he was a lawyer in his office in Queensland, you know, packing up for the day while I was just starting. And he said, oh, sorry, sorry, you know. But I think it's a bit rich, you know, we should start talking about whinging Australians in the way that they talk about <laughs> whinging pops. Because they quite clearly are. Well, you know, it's, I could talk about Australians for quite a while, and I know you can also, Fraser, yeah. being a Kiwi. I, I you know, can, so you have yeah. a very particular, you know, very close... We have, a Not always. we have a difficult relationship. Yeah, it's English-Irish, isn't it? It it's, is, it's, yeah. it's got a lot. It's got a lot in common, yeah. uh, that relationship. You know, because Australians, they're very keen to tell you how they live in you know, the, the best place on God's earth, where yeah. they have the best food and the best government and the best sport. Beautiful climate. Beautiful climate. Lovely women. All that sort of stuff. You know, so I think it's a bit rich complaining that our free podcast 
is one day late. Yeah. You know, so just go out and enjoy the fantastic climate. Exactly. Yeah. I wish we could. I wish we could do the same here. It's funny that thing about the climate. Last summer I was in Australia. A, a closely guarded secret in Sydney, Australia, is it does rain. And it can rain quite a lot. Really? I've been there a couple of times. It hasn't rained when I was oh, I've been there a few times. One time I went there, I had to go and buy a Mac. Which is not what you calculate on. And you were able to find one, OK. I just about found some, some rain gear. And anyway, I, on one occasion, I, I pointed this out to a proud Australian. I said, you know, it does sort of rain here a bit, doesn't it? And he got very tense. He got very kind of annoyed. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, it rains here occasionally. You know, it just does. He says, look... Leaned towards me in a kind of menacing fashion, and I won't do his accent. He said, "We're very proud of our weather." <laughs> and I thought about that ever since. You know, how can you be proud of your weather? You, you didn't do your weather. You know, weather no. is—you didn't create it by you know grit and you know determination, did you? Well, I think you can feel kind of nostalgic about your own weather, and once you go elsewhere, and it's not the same. Do you get nostalgic for this kind of weather when you go on your travels? Well, like, what I get nostalgic about is rain, because I don't think we do it properly in England. Whereas rain in New Zealand is proper rain. It is. It's really wet. Yes. And here we don't really do that. It's kind of a bit half hour. It's damp, isn't it's it? It's damp, yeah. yeah miserable. We've, we've had some rain this week that's, um, that's been quite, you know, a contender, hasn't it? No, not really. Oh, really? <laughs> we've also got to clear up some Abbey Road business, because okay. that's all been going on since we, uh, we published in Word a story about the decline of the studio system, and speculated that Abbey Road might be next. Well, about a week later, the FT ran with the same story, and all hell broke loose. Yeah. And, uh, and so now I had the curious experience the other day of, of talking about this story on Newsnight, front row on Radio 4, Al Jazeera. Nice. Hey. Al Jazeera, they're fantastic, they're really good, very impressive headquarters down in, in Knightsbridge, very professional, obviously, you know, they're really good. RTE, I was broadcasting okay. to the whole island on, on Saturday afternoon, and the World Service, and, and the BBC website, and, uh, and so forth. And so now, have you seen what the latest development is this morning? No, tell me. English Heritage have, have waded in and said, Abbey Road is listed. Now this made me think, is is that all they have to do, English Heritage? They don't have to have a meeting or, you know, they don't have to go, go through a procedure. They just sit there and go, you are listed. That one over there. Has it, has it always been listed or is this a I don't think so. I talked to people involved in it. They said they, they thought it was quite likely to be listed, to be protected. Because I think you only find out if something is listed when you attempt to do something. When you, when you try to knock it down. Try to knock it down or change of use or God knows what. Yeah. You know, somebody waves and says, oh, no, it's listed. And that, that includes the studio gear and the insides? And... I don't know. I don't know. Well, I would, I would suggest that if, if they've just abruptly decided it's listed, they can't have thought about that in great, in great detail yet, you know. But I've been amazed at how everybody's rushed to get into the story. You've yeah. had Chris Evans on Radio 2 doing programmes... Entirely made up of uh, of music recorded at Abbey Road, and I'm saying the pickings must have got a bit slim after you got the first couple of hours. Yeah, there's a, there's a page on Wikipedia which lists all the great recordings made at Abbey Road, and it's a, it's really diminishing returns. It, it lists quite a few of the mediocre ones made yeah. there as well. But the sixties are packed, and then it suddenly dwindles off. Well, it, it's it's your Beatles and your Pink Floyd, yeah, and, and, and the Shadows and, and your Shads. 
and uh, Helen Shapiro and so forth. Yeah. You know, I don't know where the old dance band recordings of Henry Hall and his orchestra and so forth, the Teddy Bears Picnic. I wonder if that was done at Abbey Road. I feel it ought to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's got, it's got a kind of atmosphere to it. But um, so EMI have now finally come out and said, "No, we're not going to sell it." But yes, it is running at a loss, and yes, we are seeking strategic partners who are looking at new ways of kind of trying to make the studio make sense. Yeah, know? because that's that's you know everybody rushes in and says, oh, you can't, you know, Axman, spare that tree, you can't do this. You know, well, in the end, you can't keep these things going forever. You but know? if you think that any studio had a hope, it, it would be Abbey Road because it is such a well-known brand. That's but I, I think that's part of their problem, though, that they can't. I've talked to people about this. They can't, forgive me, leverage the brand. Because if you try and make money out of the Abbey Road brand, you're trying to make money out of the Beatles. Yeah. And the Beatles and their lawyers don't look kindly on you trying to make money out of them. You know, because the Abbey Road brand itself is so inextricably linked with the Beatles. I think it's a very distinct limit to what they can do to it. Right. Uh, so beyond the kind of live at Abbey Road things we've seen, there's not much else I can do. Well, yeah. They've tried a load of things, you know. There's there's websites and so forth, but you know, I don't know. You see, if you if you even tried to do a, an Abbey Road T-shirt, which is about the most basic thing you could do, you can't do that with the, about the Beatles. No, because there's only one thing that can go on that T-shirt, which is the crossing. You would have thought. Yeah. So we shall we shall see. Watch this space. Anyway, that's catching up. Now comes the business of this particular podcast, and um, Mark Hawkinson joins us. Hello, Hello Mark. Hello there. Mark, who's come uh, bravely, uh, brave the weather. In a duffel coat. In a duffel coat. I think one. From the frozen north. Yes. From which particular part? A small town called Todmorden in West Yorkshire. Todmorden. I know Todmorden very well. Really? How come? Well, I don't say that. I've been there many times. I, I, you know, I'm not one of those southerners who would call it Todd Morden. Well done. Which occasionally happens when people yeah. refer to it on the news. Because it is a strange word, isn't it? it I suppose have a it is. Apostrophe after the rem, you know, like Todd Morden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas I've grown up, you always know you're Todd Morden. You know, so it's, it doesn't. Uh, I don't make the mistake that traffic reporters make. But um, so you come on the train from Manchester, mm. which cost you how much? Sixty-six pounds. Sixty-six pounds. It's a lot of money, isn't it? Do you know you can get from Istanbul to Tehran for 60? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go there, go on. And, and Mark's, uh, we've been trying to get Mark here for, for a little while to talk about, um, well, his book and his book publishing uh, operation. Yeah. Uh, because I'll t- start at the beginning. Um, over, uh, I went to a party before Christmas hmm. and somebody said to me, You've got to read a book called The Last Mad Surge of Youth. And I kind of nodded politely, yeah. you know. And then uh, I was in the office the following day, just before Christmas. I think you and I were in the office, Fraser. Was that time when we famously cleared out the office? Yes. And we found two CDs in the CD player. Exactly. Okay, that day. <laughs> and I went through and looked, there was a load of books. Getting ready, and this may be hurtful, getting mm. ready to be thrown out. <laughs> to, to be recycled, please. <laughs> to be recycled. You said thrown out. <laughs> and, and I saw I was flicking through them because I can't bear to throw books away no, books to I'm me like have that. more value than records you know, yeah, and I, I, I'm emotionally attached to books in, in a big way and I just third book down Last Man Surge of Youth I thought fine I'll take that as a sign what made you stop with that one because that guy mentioned it to oh, me sorry, the guy, right. and uh, and then I, I noticed it was Pomona and I'd read a Pomona book before mm. which is a Hunter Davis That's right. collection of football articles that, that had been put out 
And, uh, and I took it home and I read it on Christmas Eve. Finished it on Christmas morning. I thought it was really, really good. Thank you. Uh, and, the, and I suppose the reason why it finds its way into this podcast is it, it pretty much deals with the story of a rock band. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there are loads of people listening to the podcast today who've had unfortunate experiences reading fiction taking place in the world of rock bands and music. Yeah, I think that was something I was very much aware of in the writing of it, that uh, the standard wasn't very high. And uh, I wanted to write... I'd played in bands, I'd written about bands, I'd been around them since I was about 14 years old, I knew it intimately, and didn't think there was anything authentic about it. Well, there's something that obviously some aspects of other books are authentic, but I wanted to make it an absolute truth, as well as nail it onto a story about friendship, uh, pre-fame, post-fame. You know, I was really ambitious, I wanted to make it kind of a sprawling book against the backdrop of late 70s, early 80s, and bring it up to date. Right. we talk about talk about the book in a moment. Let's just put you... To fix you in, in people's minds, mm. what we normally do on the podcast is we always ask people to tell us what records, if any, there were in their house when they were kids. Can you remember? I mean, that I didn't buy. Yeah, yeah, before. Oh, no. What did your parents have? <laughs> My dad was into the platters. Right. Mm, strange one. Uh, and Elvis, 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 constantly. So... My interest to music was obviously a kickback to that kind of stuff, which is mainly... I miss punk, but post-punk, kind of early 80s. Right. New wave. And uh, I, I still see that period as um, fascinating and interesting because it felt like a year zero that we'd ripped everything up beforehand. There was a mass rejection of the blues and kind of the overblown, uh, you know, Alan Parsons stuff and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, it was something I wanted to look at because how do we grow old when we were meant to be year zero, you know, how, how do we... Because it was all about not compromising. And bands were quite often socio-political rather than musical. That was the first thing we would do. You'd meet and say, right, where do you stand on this and that? It'd be a, you know, a shopping list of 20-odd things that we all had to agree on. Right, you can join the band. The last thing you would say was, can you play? And the excuse was, if you can't play, brilliant, because you're not spoiled. <laughs> you're not actually... No-one's got to you yet, and we can turn you no into... No bad habits. Sorry? No bad habits. No bad habits. But also there's a kind of ideological purity there, wasn't yeah, there? That, that was the interesting thing that had entered into music at that time. Well, I it? remember when someone told me I had to tune my guitar. <laughs> and this isn't, a, you know, this is the truth. It was about a year into being in the band. And I'd been wondering why it sounded slightly different every time. And then we had a meeting. Shall we tune? Yeah, we better had. Otherwise, it's just... So how old were you then? I'd be about 16, 17. And the name of the band? first band I was in was called Untermensch, which is kind of Untermensch. a... Untermensch. which means scum in German, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> nice, nice bit of fascist kind of... Uh... Well, we didn't realise that until afterwards. We actually uh, were on a holiday in Switzerland and someone pointed out that it, it does have... Uh, horrible, connotations. Yeah, connotations. And then I, I joined a band called The Monkey Run. And we supported bands like The Wedding Present, um, Stone Roses, around about that era... And after that, I was in a group called The Last Peach, and that kind of tied in with Britpop, and we played with uh, Pulp, always supporting, and I played guitar. So this one saying that it all, it all bled into the book that I'd seen basically everyone there was to see around bands, and they've all kind of... these aggregates of people within most of the characters in the book. Right, but you were effectively a kind of poorly paid professional musician for a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, concurrent with playing in bands. I was always in newspapers uh, working. I never, uh, music was never a full time occupation. Right. It was always something we did. So you were doing births, deaths, and marriages yeah. and local I did the local paper so route, yeah. Which paper? 
Um, I started off with the Middleton Guardian in North Manchester and uh, a couple of evening papers up north. And then I started writing for The Times about 15 years ago. Right. Doing sport. Um, and more recently I've been doing features for them and, and book reviews the last five or six years. So tell us about, tell us about the band at the base, at the, the centre of The Last Man's Surge of Youth. It's a band, uh, when they start off they're called Group Hex, H-E-X, then they decide to change the name to Killing Stars. And there's two main characters within it. There's John Barrett, who's the kind of go-ahead, bushy singer, um, and then a guitar player called Dave Carey that is constantly like his conscience. And Dave Carey leaves the group just as becoming successful because he feels like he doesn't belong. He actually says, I don't belong. And John Barrett says to him, you've got to believe you belong and then you will belong. And then it just follows the band through. They become successful, then uh, they lose their success and the two friends meet again. In the meantime, Dave Carey's works on a local paper. I know this rings really no, no, autobiographical. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and it's, it's really looking at how, what compromises you make to get where you want to be and then how you deal with it afterwards. You know, you, you face your conscience again later or, or you don't. I was reading, I was just uh, revising uh, this morning and, and I happened upon um, one particular bit. It's actually on page 100 here where... Um, where they first start taking it seriously, or, or, or they, the one character realizes that the other character is serious about it. Yeah. That he goes on stage and suddenly turns into a different person. Yeah. Effectively, is that something that you kind of came to realize through being in bands? That there are some yeah. people. Yeah, I did definitely. We, we in the band I was in, the Monkey Run, we supported uh, the Storm Roses, and we went on first. It was just as they were breaking, and we plugged away earnestly and did a reasonable gig. And they came on, and they hadn't even played a note. And Ian Brown was just limply holding the microphone, doing his monkey face to the crowd and all the actions. And within seconds, this charisma just absolutely hit the back wall and came back to you. And I thought, whatever they've got, we've not got. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, my girlfriend said to me, you look like really nice lads. <laughs> and they look like, like they're not. And the irony was, in my band, we, were, we weren't, I mean, we were nice lads, but we were much more working class than the Stone Roses that came from Sale and fairly, you know, affluent suburb of Manchester. But they just had it. Never mind, I couldn't get near John Squire as a guitar player. I mean, even then, you know, in the nascent um, Stone Roses, they were wonderful players, each of them. Yeah. And then as a band... Uh, they just it, just the sound of the feedback at the beginning. And people trusted and felt at ease with them. Where I think with us, I think we put them on edge thinking, are these lads going to make it through this case? It's <laughs> <laughs> a really interesting point, actually, which I think you, you, in this chapter you, you do this terribly well, actually. That, um, that One of the things I got from the book that I found really impressive about the book was that it's about the idea of, of self-reinvention. Self you know, it's yeah. what appeals to young guys who come from very often nondescript yeah. backgrounds with, you know, probably no prospects. Yeah. But by doing this and doing it at a certain level, they yeah. can get people to accept them as being kind of superhuman. Yeah, the first time... Other than who they are. When I was at the local paper, the Middleton Guardian, there was a band called the Chameleons. I remember, that, yeah. That Mark just, Burgess. That's right, Mark. But Mark came in and... Uh, he said, oh, I've made this record, and he came in. I remember it being on two-sided, because it wasn't even pressed together properly yet. And Mark came in with his fringe over his eyes, and a really kind of nondescript-looking guy, quite shy and nervous. And he plunked this record down, and I thought... Because it was my job to review records and do stories about local bands and so on. And I took it home, and it was absolutely incredible, this record that 
this kid and his mates had made this sound because it, I don't know if you're familiar with the music, but it's it's very textured, yeah. and the lyrics are um, it's kind of this brick dust poetry that they bring to it. That they're not nothing was hackneyed about it or stereotyped. And you're saying there about this reinvention. What what Mark and the band had done was create everything that was brilliant and beautiful about where they were from, which you'd struggle to find, and turned it into this kind of musical poetry. And I thought. That's in the book. I mean, the, the title's from a, a chameleon's... It's a reference right. to the chameleons. And on stage, the, again, like the Stone Roses, they were born to it. I don't think they could do much else. Yes. Um, they didn't have jobs and, and, and have a safety net. They really lived it. But I, it taught me that... Because I, I got to them quite well, and they, they weren't from the best parts of town. They were from the rough parts of town. And I'd, they had no exams. There was nothing there apart from this incredible music. And I thought... Like you just said there, only music really does this to a number of people. You might get two or three guys that are great poets in the country, but back then it felt like in every town and village we had a half-decent band that had a manifesto and aspired to be so much more than, than, than what they were. And yeah. that, I, I tried to bring that kind of enthusiasm yeah. into the book. But, it, but it's there in the two characters, isn't it? You know, the, the one who decides, I can't do this. Yes, it doesn't matter enough to me. No. There are other options, and I've got a family but, and, and so forth. But Kerry, there's a, he's a conceited character in that he believes it will come to him via another... He believes he's going to be a novelist and a player. Yeah, right, right. So he can hang around his hometown because he's got something else to do. Yeah. So he doesn't have that urgency that John Barrett has, which people have said to me, which of the two characters do you prefer? And I prefer Barrett, funnily enough, even though he's a shit in places, and he lets people down all the way through the book. Um, he believes in it and he has the courage to go for it. Right. And, and, and Carey has stayed on, stayed on the same local paper 25 years, which is hard to do. Yeah. Because if, if you were on a local paper, within too long, you're doing the same story week in and week out. He's not got the courage that Barrett has right. to, to grab life and live it. How do you get away with... When you're writing... One of the reasons that rock novels have got a bit of a iffy reputation and, mm. I, and I'm sorry this is rather sniffy to say describe as a rock novel because it's, it's a novel that happens to be set largely against the background of music mm. is that they always have to have this trajectory of you know obscurity massive fame yeah. decline you know what I mean yeah. you, you, are you just stuck with that when you're writing a book like this well I think my, my background with the chameleons, stone roses, and I knew the wedding present quite well, and I knew the mock turtles and the spiral carpets. I was fortunate enough to be around that scene at the time. Each of them became successful. Now, I don't know whether that was just coincidence that it, it happened that way. So that trajectory was absolutely followed. There was, of course, 50 bands for each one of them that didn't make it. So I can only reflect what I saw, and I... I was quite close to say, Martin Coogan from the Mott Turtles and David Gedge from the Wedding Present, and I saw them from their early fan. I was kind of uh, quasi-management at one point with the Mott Turtles, and I went, I don't know if you remember them even, do you? I, well, I know the name, I don't know much more. Uh, Can You Dig It was the right. yeah. single a few yeah. years ago. And it was just fascinating watching how you go from little fanzine interviews and then so-and-so from the NME, and literally I saw them play Hepton Bridge Trades Club to about eight people, and I thought, how do you get from this to play... Manchester University, where there's 800 people going absolutely mad. And it was literally within two months, three months. And the enemy at that time, and John Peel, could do that to a band. Like, the, a hand would reach down and say, this will happen. And the chameleon signed to Geffen, toured America to sell out venues, 
um, and look what happened to the wedding present as well. So it, it did seem to me that it, it was very much within your your reach. And did you notice those people change? <laughs> um, I think they changed much less than a lot of people might have done because there was a certain ethos around indie bands that you stayed straight and you didn't become, uh, you know, Billy Showoff. But I think it's inevitable. It's very difficult when you you go in a room and I would be with them uh, and people look at them and, and girls look at them and, uh, you know, are they being like they were? But they're having to hold on to what they were and what they believe they want, how they want to remain. But it's very difficult for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make them more, more charming, does it? No. And, I mean, moving away from those musicians... Yeah, I think, OK. <laughs> I think what quite often happens is that they're assumed to be more intelligent and charismatic than they actually are. It's like, if you can, if you can do it on stage, it's perceived to be painted upon you wherever else you go in life. And quite often... I mean, I've done interviews with lots... I'm trying to kind of vary it and right. stretch it wider, but they're often not as bright and not as charismatic as the guy you might be working with down the factory who's got a lot more going and certainly a lot more... Uh, because one of the things you make quite a lot of in this book is obviously the key, the key uh, incident is getting a cover of the enemy, isn't mm-hmm. it? And, they're, they're, um, and you, you write very well about the idea that it's as much of a break for the writer as it is for the band, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they, they're, they're into this kind of mutual back-scratching pact, because you know, the writer has to talk them up like crazy yeah. to yeah. get them on, the, you know, to make his career look good. And he hopes to God that they happen. You know? So he, he's sort of inflating their legend all the time, yeah. isn't he? Well, it, it, there's so much that I... I mean, if I'm down in the pub with friends and we get talking, they're going, really? Really? It's like that. Because I know how all the strings work now and how you get... To, you know, and like you say there, how a writer would take a band on. And there's one instance where there's two enemy writers and one's about to interview him and the other... The two enemy writers have been really rude to one another behind each other's backs, of course, because they never do it face-to-face. And that actually happened. And I couldn't believe the vitriol that one... To me, a northerner, to write for the enemy, well, let's just be pals, we're doing a fantastic... No, <laughs> no way, it was... It was like he'd done something heinous to his mother. You know, it was, don't even, don't even stare at him. Don't look at that man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this fellow enemy writer. Because I assumed they were, like, in a, in a room this big and just played records. But, of course, they, they're all freelance and they come in and out and... I also saw how PR works and how one certain people... I mean, there's a point in there where uh, Barrett meets the manager to be and he says, it's like pressing a button. And once I press this button, everything will be different. And I saw that happen where certain key people, perhaps in a small place like the UK, there's 20 or 30 of them, and they took a band on. And it just it changed literally overnight. They went... I was doing the uh, press for the Mock Turtles for a while and it was... I began. I didn't know at the time, but kind of the junior writers would listen to me. But then, when they'd got a proper PR that was established, you know, the strands of the features editor, and you get a full page, and then before you know it, you're on the front cover. Yeah. And that was a machinery that I could never have been part of because I wasn't in the clique. Yeah. You know, the gatekeepers, really. I mean, this is old news to you. But <laughs> no, but you, you, you portray it very, very well in the book. I have to say that you know because you know th- 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 it's perpetually one of the problems of uh, when I read books like this. That the, the 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 possibility of kind of bum notes in attempting yeah. to to replicate the reality is great. You know, it's like you know, ninety percent of, of, of rock novels or rock films. You know, the record company will be called Mega Records or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and there will actually be a man with with a cigar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's sort of 
That's kind of what the public want to believe. That's isn't true. It? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They want to think that it's like that. And in some respects it is like that, but in loads of respects it's not like that at all. No. I think that the, the scene at the time was it was reflected in the music business at the time, so you get slightly different people than you might have got in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like some of those really corny 70s rock books. There's one Trevor Hoyle writes for us at Pomona. There's one called Rock Fix. And it, it's hilarious. I'm not, I'm not sure... Rock Fix, in- I don't know that one. Watch out for that one, kids. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was intended to be, but <laughs> almost every line is, you know, somebody horrible from the record company. All it, lots of, I mean, one thing I didn't want to put in the book was too much drug stuff, yeah. because that seems like a staple of the rock book. There's always a drug reference where I think the bands that broke in the period I'm writing about were quite anti-drug. Some of them switched onto it later. They were boozy bands. They were boozy, I was going to say that. It was, it was, it was the heavy drinking yeah. and the access to alcoholism, almost like we're not... That with, cocaine was the music business, so we don't do that. We stick with the pints of beer. And it was 48 cans of Red Stripe and the Lager on the, on the rider, so it was yeah, so easy access. There's also... What's interesting is that um, you, within bands, one thing you identify very well, that there is a power centre, isn't there, within oh, yeah. groups, that actually groups have this perpetual problem that they pretend to be demo- democracies and they're not at all. Yeah. They're, they're one-party states, aren't they? Yeah. You know. I think the sooner, um, if I'm giving advice to young bands out <laughs> the sooner they realise that, the better, and look after your power base because it's coming sooner or later. You know, that conversation is coming and you might as well preempt it and recognise it. And the band I was in after the Monkey Run, um, in the Monkey Run I was to try and write the songs and feel, make myself feel important. But in the last speech, I met someone who was, who was a writer and a singer. And I was about 27 at that point, And I recognised that he was really good at what he did. And I thought, I'll just fill in on rhythm and I'll enjoy it. I'll just, you know, get by. And I kind of relinquished that power struggle and felt a lot better for it, where a lot of bands are desperate. Turn me up and, you know, I've come with this idea. And, but they all, bands, in every single experience, have just been kind of camouflaged. For megalomaniacs, as far as <laughs> there's a wonderful one megalomaniac. I, I, I think I think Noel Redding, uh, the late Noel Redding, who was the bass player mm-hmm. in Jimi Hendrix Experience and a very good bass player, he wrote an autobiography in which he, I think I think Noel wrote a tune that was either on the first or the second Jimi Hendrix Experience album, fairly nondescript, yeah. know, pot boiler, and he says, "Well, I used to do it as part of the set." But on this tour, they missed it out. And I think Jimmy was a bit jealous of how well it was going there. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's like me being jealous of, you know, thinking Wayne Rooney is not picking me because I'll make him, you know, I, I'll make him look poor exactly, or something yeah. like that, you know. And, and, and there's something about people within bands that they don't see that. No, I think the group... They don't want to see that. I think almost as important as writing great songs is the actual group dynamic that they can all get on and understand where they fit in in the whole... Yeah, yeah. The, the power struggle, as it were, and when to let go and when to get involved. And I was thinking about you too the other week, how incredible it is that it's still the same four lads. And could, I was trying to think, is there anyone else that's remained the same, the same line-up? Was. Hardly. REM nearly. Yeah, I mean, um, that was forced upon them, really, wasn't it? Yeah, um, but, no, well, I think one of the reasons is, with you two, uh, one of the things that they've been very savvy about is they share all the credit and the revenue. Yeah. So all the songs are written by you two. Yeah. As, as did REM, same thing. Yeah, yeah and I think that's, a, that's 
really good idea if you can bear to do that. Well, that is dealing with the, the problem I said at the beginning, is it nice up front, we'll share it four ways, and that's how we're going to do it. But um, in most bands, it's not done that kind of, uh, in that such a civil way as it comes much later. And in fact, record companies and management and PR people, what happens, you get four or five lads that really believe in it and get on, but then they throw what they believe onto it, all the people around the band, and suddenly they're boxing people off and they're saying, you should be doing this or that should have been doing that, and why is he... So you need very strong individuals. I mean, I'm not a great fan of you two, but they must have constantly said to these people, bugger off. Oh, yeah. We'll do it this way. And and, and felt like they'd gone around almost like this claustrophobic world of the four of them, uh, being in control of their own destiny, because what happens is they pick out your very weaknesses. So they'll see that the drummer's not quite up to it, and they'll plant a seed. And it might just be that the A&R man doesn't like the drummer, but he's been with... I mean, quite often, I think, if I could sit down with a band, I'd say, it doesn't matter that you can't drum that well. It's what he's bringing in the back of the van that's bringing peace when you need it that's as important, much more important. Yeah, but I suppose they don't want to face that level of reality, do they? They don't want to be told that. No, but um, this, I mean, again, yeah, I'd be that same person, wouldn't I, proffering some advice, but my advice would be, and it's the same with writing, stick to what you believe in. Right. quite often the people around them have, it's awful to say, but failed to some degree at being that themselves. And, uh, and then come in at bands trying to, to work them into what they believe they should be. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So, is this your first novel? It's not. It is. It is it your is, first yes. novel. Yes. Have you embarked on, a, on, a, on another one? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got lots of stuff on the go, but nothing that's actually a shape yet. And, and what, what sort of interest have you had in this? Because you're in the curious position that you published this yourself. Tell, yeah. us, about your, tell us about Pomona. Well, I'd been um, writing for years, and uh, I'd done several rock biographies. I did a um, biography on Marion Faithful when I was 23, completely on my depth. And I'd done some sports books and uh, all kinds of things. And I was constantly shown manuscripts, good ones, and asked to either edit them or help them. And the one that made my mind up was uh, Boff Wally, who's the guitar player with Chumbawamba. And he gave me his book to have a look at. Um, at that point, I wasn't a mad fan of Chumbawamba, but Boff is a great writer with a great story. You know, they had that hit all around the world from their kind of anarchist leanings at the beginning and living in squats and everything. And as I, as I was working with Boff on it, I thought, no one's going to publish this. Not because any judgment on it as a piece of work or as a book, but because I look at Chumbawamba's ever-decreasing sales and see that they're past their best. And we'll think, well, we haven't got a core audience. We can't sell it to 5,000 people straight off. So... I gave off a few names of people, publishers, that, that I thought might publish it. None of them went for it. So I thought, well, I'll do it. We'll do it, you know. And um, I did a book um, by a writer called Trevor Hoyle at the same time, which is a book he'd done in the 70s that I brought back into print. And it's kicked on since there, really. So, go on, tell us, how do you publish a book? I know you publish a magazine or a newspaper or whatever. What do you do with a book? Well, what are the things you have to think about? I was I'm sure there are people listening who'd like to do this themselves. I was very fortunate to have as a good friend <coughs> a typesetter. He's one of these fellas. It's a good start. It's a good start. Um, <coughs> it's one of these fellas that um, is incredibly uh, thorough and brilliant at what he does. So, straight away... I had that there, and because I've been involved in publishing on the kind of periphery and, and worked for various publishers over the years, I knew pals within publishing that I could call upon. 
So I just I got on with it really. I mean, the main thing is to get distribution and repping. You know, to the reps going in, into shops, and they all want to see that you've got good books that they can actually sell before they take you on board. But going back to the seventies and eighties, punk ethos, it's never been easier to publish a book. You don't even have to have a good time set; you can do it yourself, and it, it, it's not prohibitively expensive if you've got a couple of grand. You can do a book. And I get sent a lot of manuscripts for consideration at Pomona that, for various reasons, we can't do. And I feel like, I, don't, I never say this because it sounds like patronising, but do it yourself. Do it yourself. <laughs> you, you've got two grand. You can have a good holiday next year, maybe, yeah. or you can publish a book and see what happens. I think, you know, I, to interrupt, I think this applies to everything nowadays. I, I yeah. find myself... and I. You're too well-mannered to immediately say do it yourself. I'm not. I just now say. Yeah. I, I gave a talk at my son's school not long ago, and I said, and it was about, you know, media and the music business or whatever. Mm. And so you've got a load of six formers. They all want to work in the media or music business. And I said, before I start, at the end, you're going to ask questions. The answer is do it yourself. Yeah. Okay? Just don't bother. Because you know, you know, what they're actually asking is, can you make me a successful novelist, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, well, you, when you can't, can you? Well, it's, it's also asking a hell of a lot from someone because you know, say that the bot—I mean, it's two thousand pounds to print the book, but you might need to spend a grand on PR and a cover and photos and all the rest of it. And what they're actually asking of you—I I don't have a, a huge resource of money. You know, I'm independent. If I can do it, they can do it, but they need to obviously they need to find the right writers and. I am 25 years apprenticeship served with yeah. my writing. But, and the frustration I had, I got taken on by a very good agent a few years ago that was sure he could sell my book. Um, which, this book? This book. And he got very close to selling it, but it was always seen as too um, uh, low scale. You know, it wasn't a big enough issues within it that, that anyone would you know, risk a huge advance on. But rather than me saying at that point, I'll do it, I was badly beaten up by the industry in terms of change the ending, can you make it a faster book? And I kept doing it. I kept kowtowing to, to people's requests and rewriting the book. And then, obviously, you're not going to, uh, where I'm leading to now, even when you've done all the changes, and I'm talking two years of work, they would say, hmm, I think I like the earlier version, oh, yeah. and stuff like that. So, but don't you think that's because... They don't want to say yes, they don't want to say no, no either. And so what they always want to do, and I know this from magazine publishers or anybody yeah. in a position of launching something where you've always got people out applying from the outside to do it, your tendency is always to say, why don't you go away and just do centre? And so what you're just thinking is, just go away and keep working on it so I don't have to think about it for a while. Yeah, it's cruel. Really. It's, it's very cruel. It's cruel. Because actually, the most honest answer is the cruelest one, which is it's no. Just- I'm not interested, I yeah. can't do it, I don't wish to think about it for one minute longer. If ten publishers had said that straight away, it would have saved me two years. But in a way, <laughs> I suffered from my own lack of confidence, because, I mean, I'm now at the stage where I don't listen to anyone apart from trusted friends, you know, and there's only three or four of them that, that I would go to with it. But some of the things that were said to me by senior uh, staff were, were comical, really. Go on. <laughs> um, Barrett has a daughter, doesn't it? That, that, that in the book she's a, about one and a half pages, and I was told to expand this character <laughs> by about twenty, thirty pages. I compl- this character nothing to as, as as soon as we find out that Barrett doesn't thinks he cares about his daughter, but is far more interested in himself. Yeah, yeah. 
she's, that's a function in the book. We can't have you going to the park day after day with this girl and like taking us to junior school in the book. It's of no relevance. And there were several of those points, like epiphanies, where I thought, I know best. Yeah, yeah. I know this book. I'll do it as I want. And I actually, two years worth of work, I went back to the version I had at the beginning. And it, that is hardcore now. That is just as I wanted it. Yeah. Every single word. And it's funny because I got very, very close with one publisher and I was like, we're nearly done the deal. And she said, as I was leaving, she said, um, can we just talk about the beginning? <laughs> and so, I thought, no. So had you done a deal with one of these posh publishers, and there aren't that many of them, no. you know, and, you, you know, it's an original work of fiction, mm-hmm. how many words? This book? Yeah. Uh, 90,000. 90,000 words, okay. It's a lot of work. How much would they have given you as an advance? Just to get an idea. Well, my agent, about five or six years ago, in the early drafts of it, was asking for £30,000. And but, would you got that? Um, well, I didn't. No. Okay. <laughs> They've come down substantially. Since? Since. And I bet you'd be looking at five or 10000 now. Right, right. No. So, any, you know, when you hear people say, Santa's got a book deal, <laughs> you know, he must be on an island somewhere. He's not, is he? You know, no. he's barely paid for the, you know... The, the, the word processor that the thing's written on. The good thing about having a, a proper book deal is that you have much more profile in shops. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that is something that we cannot achieve. Because I don't know if the punter's aware of this, but certainly in the bigger stores, you pay to have your books on the table. Well, it's the same in the magazine business, yeah. But, yeah. It's, uh, you're, you're just the same. Because, so, again, back to the old punk thing, it's word of mouth. Because uh, I had a big piece in, I think it was the Times about the book, and I went to the Manchester Waterstones... And they had one copy, spine on, right at the back of the shop. You would have had to really wanted my book yeah, that yeah. day. And uh, I asked someone, one of the reps, you know, can they find out? And he said, well, there's not, not really a lot of demand for it. And I thought, well, if no one can see it, how can that, you know, how can it ever fulfil? But hasn't the internet suddenly, you know, we, we're always hearing how it's revolutionised in the, the world for small businesses, that yeah. you can have access to your customers, your customers can get access to your product. Presumably you, you supply your stuff mail order, do you? Yourself? Yeah, we do okay with that. Uh, and uh, hasn't this benefited you in a big way? You do, but uh, research has shown that you sell to kind of core, interested, kind of hardcore customers. Right. We do. Um, but you, the difference in making a book sell 1,000 and 20,000 is your passive browser that's like you know like you said you discovered my book at christmas is that yeah. kind of uh, background noise works around a book and then they have to see it and buy it and that's by far the biggest sector of making the difference so then word of mouth kicks in so you've got that malthusian thing where it's going to for 16 and the rest of it yeah, as, yeah. as it spreads out where ours is so minuscule it's almost one-on-one telling somebody because right. it's, it's not it's not seen, it's not visual enough, the books that we do. But to make it seen costs you a lot of money. That's the difference, and that, that, that's what I was saying before about you can make the means of production are cheap, but in, in terms of uh, having bestsellers, we couldn't do it, it's not right. possible. So how many copies have you sold of that? About a thousand. About a thousand. And that's with universally good reviews, you right. know, which is all we can get, because yeah. we can pull favours, but we've no... Shop profile. That's that's a good seller for Pomona. Right. So they're only small numbers. Yeah, yeah. So, you, but you, you're um, you've got other things on your list that you've got, you know, possibly some you're quite optimistic commercially about. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were. Um, I've been working with an American writer the last five years on a biography on uh, J.D. Salinger, and uh, 
As we all know, he, he died a few weeks ago, and it placed us in absolute pole position with the first serious tome on Salinger. Be honest, when you heard that news, you punched <laughs> the air, didn't you? <laughs> and, and, and Salinger had a very good innings, didn't he? Was he 90? 91. 91, so he, he's not owed anything, is he? You know? No. In a way, it wasn't... You must have gone, yes, it's ready, <laughs> it's at the printers, wasn't you? I'm a big fan of his work. Yeah, I did. I did. Legendary <laughs> rock star dies in in the word office. You know, smiles break out all over. You buggers. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about people who've had a decent innings. You know. Yeah. No, I did realise instantaneously that it changed everything for Pomona in terms of. Uh, I was telling you before that I've done a deal into America with Random House for the book, Australia a company in Spain, and suddenly we've got a book that's hot that hopefully I can, uh, you know... It, after 20 books of selling an average of about four or 500, I've got a book that... We've already got orders in the UK for about two or 3,000. Right. And it's a hardback, and it's 20... Which, so that's proper money, isn't it? It's proper money, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're not going to retire on that, are you? No, I can't retire now. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody's going to retire out of book publishing, are they? Well, Unless I'm, they're John Blake and they do a, a Jordan deal, you know, yeah. like he did very shrewdly I all those I always think if you do anything to the best with a good heart long enough... And this might sound really optimistic, that good things can happen. And right. JD sailing just there might just be. <laughs> but, you, but you're also in the debt of, um, you know, your list has got quite a bunch of old chaps in it, hasn't it? it? Sounds, you know, that, uh, that I, one of the first books I read on your list was uh, Hunter, Hunter Davis, the uh, you know the, the the doyen of kind of Sunday and sports journalism. Yeah, still writes. Um, and it used to do Atticus, I think, in the Sunday Times. It did, didn't it? Right. Several years. And, uh, and, uh, and used to write about football in a very colourful way when nobody else did. He was a great writer. He's a fantastic writer. What was that one called that I read? I can't remember. The Fan. The fan? Yes. Uh, but you've also you've got um, uh, Barry Hines. Yeah. Barry Hines, the man who wrote Kes. Kestrel for a Knave that became Kes and various others. What draws you to those people? I think it's um, nostalgia and... Uh, I kind of wishing to pay homage to them and I wanted to bring their books. I mean, I, I don't read that many contemporary books and I do find that I'm constantly... In terms of the precision of writing and the, the kind of the stories that they, they bring forth, they were a major influence on me. I remember reading The Glory Game very young. Oh, yes. Kez. Which is out of print, isn't it, The Glory no, Game? I think mainstream picture. Oh, it right. Up. It's the great book about Spurs, Fraser. I wouldn't know. Yeah, you wouldn't know. Okay. Still, people still refer to it regularly. And I was also surprised at how pleasant these chaps were and happy to do with you, because we don't offer advances. We do, like, um, an indie record label deal where we do a 50-50 once we've passed break-even. And they were just charming and happy that someone... And that somebody took an interest. Yeah, basically. I flattered, yeah. I'm sure. I'm and sure. I got to meet them. So somebody like... You know, I don't know, Barry Hines or whatever, it's written, you're talking about books that might have been written 20, 30 years ago yeah. and have gone out of print. Have the rights reverted to Barry Hines? Yes, they have. Right, That's so he can do. say to you, yes, you can publish it. Yeah, and they're glad to see their book repackaged and out there again. The last Barry Hines book we did was an anthology of new writing, but it was, in a sense, all writing. It's writing done in the 70s and 60s that had never been published before. So it's not all just finding them and right. putting old stuff out. What makes you, you now? You're obviously you're based in in well, you're not in Todmorden anymore. Hebden Bridge. Hebden Bridge. Um, what what makes uh, your company different as a consequence of being there rather than being in Bloomsbury or Chelsea? Where I don't think it's, it's a bit like that Ian Brown thing, and it? it's um, not where you're from; it's where you're at. I don't think that matters. I think it's 
It's like early on we had the choice what kind of paper do you want to use? And I always like that yellowing book weave paper. I said, I want it like that. And the printer said, well, that's three times as dear. I said, I don't care. Can you kind of imbue it with the smell of so-and-so? And I was, like, I was that pedantic about how I wanted them to be. And we went for this house style. Like I said, we used a typesetter called Christian Brett, who's, who's doing great things now for lots of other people. But he was just a pal that happened to have this amazing skill at laying things out. So... Do you know what widows and orphans are and stuff like that? Oh, yes, I know what widows are. Yeah, I'm old enough. Yeah, yeah. The people listening to this who certainly know what widows and orphans are. And he just, he's, he's so anal, it's fantastic yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of the books. I wanted them to... I used to collect factory records and rough trade records and, it, and all the Smiths singles when they came out. On th- and just the aesthetic of them right. felt right. And my naive dream was that people would buy a Pomona book thinking, I trust the few people behind this to have taste and I wanted to edit it forensically everything we put out because the locally produced independent books are always on crappy paper that feels like powder they're always badly edited the covers are always awful and one of the things I've been was like from my experience of being in bands I am now that power <laughs> you know that, that kind of character that says and I've said to you know guys much older than me much more established and much better writers than I am I don't like that cover and gone as far as saying, I can't put it out right. because I'm not happy with it. And if I'm not happy with it, and they respect that. Like you said before, it's, it's a clear message. You know, and quite often, I don't say, come back at me with 10 ideas and we'll have a focus meeting. You know, it's <laughs> like, I'll all say, but I've thought of this one. Can right. we have this one instead? And they, they quite often go for it. Listen, there's one thing I just wanted to talk to you, to you about because it came up this, week, this weekend that The Guardian ran a very good... Very good piece uh, called Rules for Writing Fiction. Uh, and I think this was probably uh, triggered by Elmore Leonard, the mm. detective, the crime thriller writer, years ago, wrote, wrote 10 Rules for Writing Fiction. Yeah. And I think one of them was, you never have any word instead of said. You know, yeah, if yeah. somebody says something, they say it. They don't yeah. assert they, or anything like that. It's always, yeah. you know, he likes very flat prose. And he doesn't don't waste time on physical description and stuff like this. And they've they've challenged a load of other writers to come up with their own rules. And I personally find this fascinating mm. because you know I I do a lot of writing. I don't write any fiction. No. And I I couldn't write fiction. I know I couldn't write fiction. I couldn't do it. But I'm fascinated by the kind of techniques that people might use to uh, you know t- to do it do you have any rules yourself I've written some down go on this is good <laughs> this is original material um, one thing I, the, the PC I write on it isn't connected to the internet so I can't receive emails and I can't I can't surf the web I think that's really important Jeanette Winterson said the same She'd thing in here which I think is really you've good you've got to stay in the world that you're in when you're writing and anything that pulls you from I do have the phone there I mean I've got two kids so I, you know you like keeping tabs on what's going on at home but Beyond that, I think it's really important that you're isolated. Right. And don't have any temptation to move from it. Because just the change or switching mood can, it can be days returning to where <laughs> you were, you know, that, that feeling. Um, There's somebody in one of these rules also said that, I can't remember who it was, that he always works on two things simultaneously. Then he can always persuade himself that he's escaping from the one he finds onerous That's to the good. one he finds more, yeah. more pleasurable. Yeah. I think that applies in loads of things in life, actually. Anyway, go on. Um, I'm a big one for revision, and the book there, Last Man's Surge of Youth, um, probably 20 revisions, two months each time. So you're looking at three and a half, four years of after the book's written, just revising. 
And so you spent, what, what do you mean? You spent two months revising it? Uh, two months from beginning to end, cutting scenes and cutting back words. I'm not doing, no, not doing any work. Two months? Yeah. Good and I must have done that 20 times. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. To the point where you, it, you know, it can become a mush after a while because I'll, I'll try and then have, between them, it might be a month of doing just newspaper work or something completely right. different. But I don't think you can beat going back to it and back to it. And right. how do you know when you're done? Hmm. I did know when I'd done. It's when I stopped listening to everybody else about it. And uh, some of those revisions were done in the midst of being advised by some people. Right. Uh, so how wide a circle of people do you show things to? About four or five. Oh, really? As many as that? And they're each of them, with this book, are experts on, they would say, no, that one gang of four's third single. <laughs> or what did you mean by a choppy Bauhaus Daniel Ash <laughs> guitar? That wasn't right. And then I've got a good friend, Andy Hollis, that uh, proofreads all the Pomona books, and he's uh, a bit like Christian with the typesetting. Right. He's, he's, his grammar is perfect. So there's a mistake. It's in my previous book where I put the plural of pike, the fish, is pike, and I put pikes. <laughs> and he... Easy mistake to make. <laughs> It hurts. It hurts. It's on page one. yourself again. You get into a fetal ball under the duvet in the middle of the night when you think about that. It's gone. Back Um, to your list. um, A bit like Martin Amis, I hate any cliche in a book. Right. Um, And if I see one within the first ten pages, I'm afraid. I quite often put it down. What's the classic cliche? Oh, just really, you know, knife through butter or anything like that that's... You know, you're clenching your buttocks and you think, I can't trust this guy. I can't trust you anymore. <laughs> so you look at those signs early on. Go on, Karen. And on. also, if these two paragraphs begin with the same word consecutively, that okay, hurts. Yeah. I re- and, uh, so you're a- scanning the page ahead before you're reading it. Sc- well, yeah, I can see, you know, if it's up there, then it comes it's again. again. You've oh. lost your impact of your next power, haven't yeah, you? Because yeah. you've already. Okay. Uh, right about what you know about, which everybody says. Uh, uh, be careful with, uh, I don't like uh, Will Self and that kind of writing that you need a, a thesaurus to read it. Right. So I always, if there's a word, you know, I do, I do have quite a wide range of vocabulary, but I won't say pusillanimous if I can say cowardly or whatever. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so okay. when I, I was 23 and I did the book on my unfaithful, when I read it now, it's almost like English is a second language because <laughs> I have her alighting from omnibuses rather than <laughs> getting off the bus. You know? There's one bit where she fallen out with Jagger and I put vacillation was in the air. <laughs> it's never been in the air. And it, it's, it's malapropism, isn't it? I've since looked, but it, it's... I, that's what you do when you're out of your depth and you think, I need to show I'm clever, so yes. you show you're as stupid as anyone has <laughs> ever lived by putting vacillation. It's true, we've all done it, we all still do it a bit. Go on. Uh, write every day right. and work through. So, life. what's your. Yeah, that's one of the things that people talk about a lot in here, mm. is in this Guardian list, is, is. And very often they talk about early in the morning. I've got two kids, so I can't start right, early in the yeah, morning, yeah. so it's like 10 o'clock. Okay. And uh, I rent a room that I write from where not many people know where I am. Over a seat, go and hide. So really? you I, do, hide? I go and hide, and I have... It's done up like a sitting room or a study, even though it's an office So it's an office space. building done up like a yeah. domestic room. Yeah. And, uh, That's interesting. It's got a feel... I like reflective writing, and I, I try and bring that to it, that kind of... A lot of rock books are quite in your face, where I, my style is more, I think... I hate the word gentle, but 
Right. That way on. Yeah, yeah. And that gives me that feeling, I think, if you're somewhere in a... Yeah. Do you write sitting down? Write sitting down, yeah. I've, I've recently discovered the, uh, the joy of writing standing up. Yeah? I've got it, yeah. And I, I blogged about this and I got a lot of response from people who also write standing up or do whatever they do standing what up. What does that bring well, to you? Well, your energy just increases. You're when more you stand alert. Up. You're far more alert. Right. And I've got to stand for my lap- laptop. Right. And if I have to write a really long thing that takes a lot of energy, I find it's far better standing up. And what I do is I write a sentence and then I pace around the room. Then I write so, a, a lot of uh, radio DJs broadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. your energy, energy. But does, that, does, that, does that infuse the writing in a certain way then? Or? Um, I don't know about that, but it gives you... I, I feel I have more stamina to do it. I attack it. I, I, right. I, I'm in a, in a more alert state. Is this your column in the word? Because that is quite no, up and at you, isn't it? No, not particularly. I don't know, just long things I've had to write where you think you've just got to make yourself do it. And part mm-hmm. of making yourself do it is standing up. And also, another thing that people refer to in this Guardian list a, a, a lot is if you're stuck, go for a walk. Yeah. I'll go and do something active. And I think it's so true. I've you, never done that. You've never done that. You should think how, think how good you'd be if you did it. Good enough as it is. My, my danger is in this room I've just described. I like it overheated as well. And I'm quite often just about to fall asleep. Oh, some, of the, oh, some of the best stuff has come. This kind of power napping idea, I think, is, is very true. 15 minutes sleep and it's, wow, I can go till six or seven. Oh, well, are you the power Good nappers. stuff. It's very true, it's very true. Talking about the temperature. Somebody was telling me the other day, we were talking about um, David Letterman, and that Letterman's studio is freezing cold. Mm-hmm. He deliberately has it like that. The audience have to come in there in coats because they can't believe how cold it is because it increases his alertness mm-hmm. massively whereas most working environments uh, you know, are very yeah. warm. Yeah. What else you got? Oh, sorry, I've got to tell you so one thing. I've got to interrupt for the point on the, on the writing in the morning before I forget it because it's my favourite literary anecdote which I've just got to get it off my chest. Anthony Trollope, a Victorian novelist who wrote 41 novels, I think I'm right in yeah. saying used to employ a manservant whose job it was to wake him every morning at 5.30 with coffee and then without getting out of his nightshirt or washing yeah. his face, he would write for two or three hours every day because he had to go to his other job, which yeah. was Postmaster General. <laughs> <laughs> so if any clown tells you, I'm going to take a bit of time off because I feel like I've got to write a novel, I'll get lost, you know what I mean? Doris Lessing was the same when really? she came from, to England from South Africa with a, a young baby at that point, she realised she could only write, I think, something like between three and five yeah. o'clock in the night until the baby woke up and she had to deal with it through the day, living on her own. Yeah. Think, that's, what, that's what you need. Well, yeah. <laughs> it still amazes me when I read about Dickens, you know, that you, know, you think, what did he do? How yeah. much did he manage to get through? You know? Whereas you meet people now and say, yeah, I'm leaving my job. Not so much now, you don't, but you used no. to. Yeah. Leaving my job because I think oh, I'm going to take a cottage in Wales. And I thought I might write a book. <laughs> and then they're back within four months. Have you written anything? Oh, no. Because yeah, they just wanted the rest. And it's yeah. not a rest, is it? You they, know? they do get on your nerves, people like that, don't uh, they? Yes. It's like... Definitely. The assumption that that's all it takes, hiring a cottage. Yes. <laughs> oh. Well, the other great piece of advice is P.G. Woodhouse, that if you want to be a writer, first apply the seat of the trousers to the surface of the chair. Yeah. Which is the opposite of my standing up. Yeah. Just get on with it. Yeah, what else you got? Um... This is more of a, a bigger issue, but I think when I was dealing with publishing companies, they were always on about the narrative and the plot to 
too much of a degree, I think. And I think some of the best writing, if you try and summarise some of the best books, it's quite difficult to do because nothing much happens. But somehow it works as a book. And I think what they're all doing, it's kind of a sly eye on the film script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the selling on. And they become obsessed with it. And quite often, oh, the narrative arc. <laughs> what is, they probably don't know what it means, half of them. No, no. Um, my advice would be just write it all out. Write whatever you want, because no one knows what sells anyway. Yeah, no yeah, one. yeah. It's all complete guesswork, like music businesses. So just... And worry about that later. If you feel it can, you can superimpose a plot, do it afterwards. I mean, I've certainly done that whoops, with, with mine. Because um, it was... Quite a lot of it was a collection of essays that I, I melded together as one piece of work. You can do that afterwards. You know, I, I, I don't think that way. I think it's when writing becomes almost scientific when people are working on the plot for a week and this yeah. is going to happen and that. I didn't know where they were going to take me. I created these characters and then let them wander off. I suppose it's also, of course, it still amazes me again, P.G. Woodhouse. There's a very good Robert McCrum book about P.G. Woodhouse right. uh, biography. It came out a few years ago. And Woodhouse spent most of his life writing these you know, lightest meringue yeah. comic comic novels, but he wouldn't start unless he had a hundred pages of plot, right. which is amazing. Yeah, because he felt he had it in his head. Then he could do the writing was quite easy yeah. once he got that structure, you know. But I, and again, this is one of the things that people say: just do a thousand words a day. Do do th- two thousand yeah. words a day, even if you don't think it's any good. Do it, and I don't. It's there, and don't delete it either. Keep yeah. it because you never know when. Uh, I mean, in my in my PC, I must have half a million words unpublished that are all. I kind of roughly know where they are, and sometimes something you thought was rubbish actually will work in a certain uh, scenario. Right. So don't ever delete anything. I think it's Hil- Hil- Hillary Mantle or somebody says that you should always write with a pencil. You should, you know, because that you can write at the speed that you can think. I type at the speed, I think. <laughs> I think. I think our generation does. Barry Hines still, well, when he was writing, Barry still wrote everything longhand. And I think we think that much quicker now because... No, I, I type very slowly. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I, 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 typing sometimes runs away with me. But then again, that brings us another conversation for another podcast, which is about how we're all steadily losing the use of our writing yeah. hand. You know, yeah. I, I had to go. And, I had to go and get a fountain pen out recently to make me write properly. Yeah. Because with a biro, I simply I was writing like a five-year-old child. Okay. I've been recently noticed I miss letters out. Yes, you I, do. And I'm thinking, is this the beginning? No. <laughs> well, you imagine you're doing that. Imagine what your kids are going to be like. Yeah. Because they can't. This my wife's a teacher. Tells me this. Right. The kids nowadays can't form letter by letter. No. And so when you wrote out, and you know, the surge. In the old way, you an S and a U and an R and a G yeah. and an E, and then you connected them. Together, then you but say. now, the more likely to go, search, okay, and I can do an approximation of what that sound and that word is. And so that's why you misled. But they can fix the DVD, can't they? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your, what's your next book? Um, it's a book called uh, A Picture of England, and when I was growing up, our house was a typical working-class house with very few books in, but we did have one called... The Best of England. It was like those old shell books. And he profiled ten villages like Dunster in Somerset, Clovelly in Devon. And because we didn't have many books, I looked at this book constantly and it's like, I wished I could be in these lovely... I'm living now in North Manchester and Rochester where I brought up and I'm thinking, does England have places like this? Um, A few years ago I went round five of them with my two young sons 
who are now 11 and 13, and I'm doing the same trip five years on. And it's kind of a reflection on uh, fatherhood, Englishness, an Englishness I wasn't even aware of in the sense of these towns and so on, and uh, a travelogue, and that'll be finished uh, October, November time. Right, is that going to come out before Christmas? Probably not. Yeah. No, well, I suppose you don't, you don't, you don't, you're running your own company, you don't have to worry about deadlines. You just tied in with the reps do like six months yeah. to sell it into shops. Yeah, yeah. There are, the worst, I mean, another thing to point out, if anyone is thinking of publishing, is that getting the ISBN and the barcode and a lot of the admin involved is horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Even uploading a, a cover shot for Amazon is like learning Chinese. <laughs> and if you're writerly at all and you're kind of, oh, that's not me, you've got, you have to become that, otherwise it's not done. Right. And if you're not on the system, they can't log the sales. And we've had all sorts of problems where one of our early books had someone else's barcode on. So every time we sold one, some other guy somewhere else. <laughs> Somebody else was shooting out there. It was probably Russell Brand. You know, it's probably his, his, his bookie wookie was doing very well out of your, out of your sales. Well, look, Mark, it's a terrific book. And I highly you. recommend it. We'll, we'll put a link on the, on the site to, yes, we will. Well, to Pomona, see yeah. someone directly. Oh, this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.